As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dr. Nada Shabut. Born in Scotland, Dr. Shabut is of Iraqi descent. She lived in Baghdad from the time she was six years old until her graduation from the Baghdad High School for Girls. In 1980, she moved to the United States to pursue a college education and received degrees in art and architecture from the University of Texas at Arlington. Dr. Shabut is currently a professor of art history and the coordinator of the Contemporary Arab and Muslim Cultural Studies Initiative here at the University of North Texas. She is also the founding president of the Association for Modern and Contemporary Art from the Arab world, Iran and Turkey, known as AMCA. She is the project advisor for the Saudi National Pavilion, Venice Biennale, 2019, and the author of Modern Arab Art, Formation of Arab Aesthetics, of which many impressive reviews were written, like this one stating, Nada Shabut has written a groundbreaking study of contemporary Arab art. This highly readable and informative book will undoubtedly be regarded as a foundational text for art historians and students of Arab modernity alike. Quite impressive. And this is by no means her only literary contribution to the art world. Dr. Shabut is also co-editor with Salwa Mikdadi of New Visions, Arab Art in the 21st Century, co-editor with Annika Lindsen and Sarah Rogers of Modern Art in the Arab World, Primary Documents. Dr. Shavut is curator of Sajil, A Century of Modern Art Interventions, a dialogue between the modern and the contemporary, co-curator of Modernism and Iraq at the Wallach Art Gallery at Columbia University and curator of the traveling exhibition Dafatir, Contemporary Iraqi Book Art. Her awards include Writer's Grant from the Andy Warhol Foundation, the Presidential Excellency Award at UNT, the American Academic Research Institute in Iraq Fellow 2006-2007, MIT Visiting Assistant Professor, Spring 2008, and 
Fulbright Senior Scholar Program, 2008 Lecture Research Fellowship to Jordan. Welcome, Dr. Shabud. It's a privilege to have you here. You are the founding president of the Association for Modern and Contemporary Art from the Arab world, Iran and Turkey, called AMCA. You mentioned to me earlier that AMCA, in collaboration with the University of North Texas, receives a grant from the Getty Foundation, and that this is an important project to map the teaching of art history in the region and understand how art history is understood. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, of course. The specific moment where we seem to be successful in reevaluating much of our heritage and history is an, a perfect moment for this project to be starting. Although, of course, we've postponed the project or extended rather the project a year because of difficulties and challenges with travel for collecting data over this summer. The project aims to map out the teaching of art history in the Arab world, Iran and Turkey, you know, not necessarily every single country of the Arab world, but where we are able to have access in order to, A, facilitate notions of connecting art histories, because the grant is part of the Connecting Art Histories for the Getty Foundation. If we want to connect and we want to think about, is art history global, which is something, a topic that has come up and has been discussed. There's a whole book about, is art history global, and a lot of sort of engagements back and forth with James Elkins, and the notion that art history as a field of study is a sort of European development of the 19th century. Well, then this is the time for us to understand how does the region of the Arab world, Iran and Turkey, think about art history? What is their perception of it? There seemed to be this myth that there is no art history in the region. It's not compiled, it's not written, and it's not taught. This project aims to dispel a lot of these mythologies and understand how is it perceived? I mean, it does not necessarily have to parallel or mimic what we do here, but we certainly can't just ignore or dismiss the fact that there would be a specific perception that they follow. So this project, which consists of actually sort of what we're calling country leads, a team of seven who have the region more or less divided among them based on their area specialties in art history, where we're going to collect data on courses that are taught and talk to people about what is art history and how is art history. And so we can have that data available for researchers, but also we'll be able to contextualize a new narrative about art history of the region. There is a wonderful website describing this effort. I found so much interesting information to that link that I could actually do three or four podcasts with <laughs> you to talk about it. And we are going to post that on the description with the podcast so that our listeners can go to that as well. And now talking about art history, art is a marvelous way to visualize the interconnectedness of people. Do you find that modern Arab art helps to connect people from the other parts of the world to the Arab world? Such a loaded question that I have been dedicating lots of courses <laughs> on uh, through my academic career. Well, I mean, you know, 
on the surface of it, you think, sure, that should make sense. That should be a way of connecting the, the world with the, the Arab world through their art. But the story is very much connected to the project that we were just talking about, is that there is no equal acceptance or perception of what this modern Arab art is. It is a very sort of complex history that connects to imperialism, colonialism, Orientalism, a whole bunch of other isms, and the canon of art history. So how do we think about modernism in general and how it is taught and in the books of art history? It seems to still want to persist on being a European development, an understanding of history or a formation of history that specifically pertains to Europe, which on some level is true because the way it has been taught and uh, articulated takes into account that moment only specifically in Europe. But the reality is, if we want to say that modernism is connected to modernity, which is, you know, sort of an obvious, then that modernity couldn't have just happened at one point in, in this world. It happened at different places, at different times, in different ways. And so, you know, in a way, we can't think of modernisms uh, as a collective or even as an alternative because it is a specific interaction, reaction, engagement with a historical development. Well, until the Arab engagement with that moment of change in history is accepted as an equal form of knowledge, an equal form of visual development, then unfortunately, Arab art, modern Arab art specifically, does not really do that connectedness, because then it is seen as either a derivative or a lesser than uh, development than modernism or modern art in Europe. There's that problem with the notion of it as a connected moment or phenomenon. And then there is also the other problematic that happens with not just the Arab and Islamic worlds, but all of the post-colonial or the non-Western worlds where we want to task the art, the visual development of those countries with way more than aesthetics, which is not something we ask from European art or even American art. We don't ask American art to explain to us the politics of America, do we? However, we do ask Arab art to explain to us anything from why do women veil to terrorism to jihadism to all these other aspects of culture and society that may not necessarily have to do anything with the art. It's a, not as simple as a, one would want to say yes. On some level, I'm sure it does. I spoke earlier with Jordan Williams about the connection between colonialism and the literary style of Afrofuturism. Mm -hmm. In reviewing what you have written on Arab art and what you're just saying, talking about the cultural and social conditions within the Arab world and the connection with European art, I'm wondering... And if people are searching for communication on the cultural and social conditions in modern Arab art, and you're saying it's not necessarily there or it is there, what's your comment um, on that? Well, I mean, what I'm saying is that for, let's say, let's say we have an exhibition of, say, one of, you know, the exhibitions that I've had. For example, Modernism in Iraq that I co-curated with Zainab Bahrani at the Wild Gallery in Columbia University. People who came to the exhibition were either 
people who or teach the non-West. And so they came with a specific understanding of how to receive this art or people who had no idea and they came out of curiosity and then just didn't really quite understand why does this not look so different necessarily in various ways than, let's say, the art uh, that was developed in Europe or the United States during that same period of time. The problematic is in the the need for it to be different. So what I say is that the colonial, specifically heritage and Orientalism, locked the region into that sort of endless, timeless representation that is expected, which is to be exotic and look so different. And to talk about the wonderful decorative of the Islamic plates or uh, ornamental designs, because then they are so remote and so distant they are by those other people that we do not, who we do not know and we cannot really connect to. If we speak of 20th century art and we actually see that there is a lot of sort of intersections and overlaps between what was happening in Europe, because what was happening in Europe, just sort of as a, a side note, was something that was not specifically European. If we look at Paris of the 20th century, it was full of people from all walks of life, you know, from all parts of the world, whether from the United States, the Americas, or the Middle East, or South Asia, or Africa. And they were not just there copying something that existed, but they were all participating in forming something. So if we think of Picasso as a French cubist, you know, we miss the point that cubism in its formation has way more than just Europe. And of course, Picasso was a Spaniard from Malaga, and there is a whole heritage that he brought with him that was not neither Parisian, French, or even specifically European. This becomes the issue. It's even in the beginning, in the sort of approach to it. Oh, this kind of looks like something familiar. I can see. Well, then those people are like me, but then that becomes the problem of acceptance. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people have those expectations for modern Arab art? Because that's what you're talking about, right? Not just Arab art in general, but also modern Arab art, that they have these expectations they might not have for modern art in different parts of the world. Why do you think that is? Well, actually, they probably have the same expectations about modern Indian art or modern African, modern Nigerian art or Brazilian art, because we are trained in the sort of Euro-American tradition and the canon of art history to understand certain development as the ultimate knowledge. And so if we think of modernism, then we are thinking Europe and anything else can have to be compared to what was happening to Europe. It's in that comparison that we lose this sort of connection and understanding because you're thinking then that there is an original, an origin and a copy or something where you have a center and you have a preferee, a marginal sort of development. And this is where that problematic exists. I mean, simple example, if you've taken art history classes in college, as most people have, which is called sort of Western art history or art history of the the West or something of the sort. I can't even remember that anymore. But what it does is starts with Mesopotamia, then Pharaonic art, then it jumps to the Middle Ages and Europe and Renaissance and so on and so forth. When they revise these books because of the 
post-colonial studies starting in the 1970s, let's say, with Yentilism, the seminal book by the late Edward Said, well, they started adding a chapter called Islamic Arts, where 13 centuries of development of the visual art were crushed into one chapter. Then with time, they added another chapter called Modern Art of the Non-Western World, where there is within that one chapter, we're talking about some countries in Africa, some countries in the Middle East, some countries in South America, and so on and so forth. Well, for the students who are now studying, what, let's say 15 chapters that seem to be 10 of them at least are about Europe and only five at best are about the rest of the world, that that immediately shows an inequality. And that tells the story that, well, what was happening in Europe, what was happening throughout the ages is more important than anywhere else. If we are teaching the Renaissance at that moment of time as a way out of the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, which were, of course, not so dark in most of the rest of the world, but we are still teaching them in this way. We're still focusing, the center of focus still remains Europe, which tells students that all this other stuff is not equal and not necessarily as important then. Do you find that's changing? Slowly. Slowly, clearly, since I was a student until now, there is, and me teaching now, there is kind of a, you know, a way, wide way of difference. But I see the books trying to revise. But the thing is, it's kind of what we're talking about this moment in here in the United States with racial tensions. It's not changing a, a, you know, one regulation and one law that is going to address the racism. The reason why we have not as a nation confronted much of the racial that is still out there and that is still even till today debated is that it wasn't really acknowledged as such. I mean, you have to accept the fact that, you know, we still are a racist society for us to be able to address this change. Well, it's a, it's a very similar situation. Unless we address that we are still having Europe as a center that everything else compares to, as long as this is the beginning of the conversation, Europe is the beginning of the conversation, then we can't really change the culture. We're only sort of changing few symptoms here and there. In what way is the modern Arab art linked to the Arab identity right now? Well, I mean, if we think about the Arab identity, and this is, you know, this is specifically where we're getting into the post-colonial world. And, you know, there was the the so-called Islamic world with the different dynasties, and most of the Arab world actually were the provinces of the Ottoman Empire, with few exceptions. And then after World War One and Two, in between the wars was the development of the mandates. What when the Ottoman Empire was dismantled after the World War One? when they lost and uh, they you know went into the war at the wrong side and lost and the by now very famous Sykes-Pico treaty d- divided this region that was the Arab provinces from the Ottoman Empire into the different countries and pretty much divided them between the imperial powers and many of those countries were either directly colonized or under some mandate this was also equally the time that the notion of Arabism as an identity was being developed. Now, the Arab provinces, you know, populated with a majority of Arabs, but there are a lot of minorities, mostly speak Arabic, and Arabic was the sort of lingua franca of the Islamic age. 
They communicated through the empire, through the Arabic text, but even the Ottomans, but in the Arab world, they spoke Arabic with different dialects, but they thought of themselves as Muslims first, as part of the Islamic sort of realm, which does does not differentiate between Arabs and non-Arabs. Now comes sort of the time leading to imperialism and colonialism with various long historical developments that I'm now not going to go into. But within even the Ottoman Empire of today's Turkey, there is this sort of Turkish first sentiments developing in the Arab world. And with the help and aid of the British Empire at the time, You know, we all know of Lawrence of Arabia, you know, the movie, we've all seen the movies. Lawrence of Arabia's interference in pushing this notion of Arab identity first. There was a saying that the Prophet Muhammad was an Arab before being a Muslim, so Arabism becomes more important. Then that kind of develops into more of a secular aspect of who are the Arabs in the modern sense, those who speak Arabic. Then the countries developed what was called the Arab League. And so this world that was within a very short period of time changed drastically from being, I mean, let's think about, for example, Iraq, where that was made out of three sort of provinces, Basra, Baghdad, and Mosul, which were part of the Ottoman Empire, were now put together within a line, borders, and called a country that was under British mandate for a while before they helped instate a royal, a monarchy in it. And then, you know, that would lead into the 1958 revolution. And through all of this, there is this kind of need to figure out, well, who are we now within this new country, within these new ideas? So then the Iraqis, including Iraqi artists, are negotiating what does it mean to be an Iraqi at that moment of time and how to have a visual art that expresses this identity. Now, the need for that, I mean, you know, we talk about American art here. How American art at certain points of time in America, the United States as a post-colonial entity in itself, how it was navigating the identity of what is, what did it mean to be a U.S. citizen or, you know, an American in North America within the United States. This is what the Arabs were doing. And it was sort of almost in various ways imposed on them by the politics of the time to have to assert an identity because of various political situations that were were happening at that moment in time, not just the post-colonial, you know, the Algerians having to get rid of the French and then the British in different places, the creation of the state of Israel, question of Palestine. There were many reasons that forced the artists to have to negotiate who they are and how they differentiate themselves differently from the others. So for that reason, yes, modern Arab art, to a large extent, is an art of identity and does at least, you know, in various ways express who the Arabs are or at that moment of time specifically. If you Googled Arab art, you will also find art of the 11th and 12th century, which is what we now is mostly referred to as Islamic art. But because the Umayyad dynasty, the Abbasid dynasty, they were still sort of Arab, mostly Arabized dynasties. It becomes confusing when you use the term Arab, but in mostly now it is used within this notion of the modern age, the modern Arab. I would assume based on what you're saying, then within the umbrella of modern Arab art, there must be different types. I mean, because they're coming from so many different regions, so many different histories, so many different people, right? Absolutely. 
it is historical necessities at different moments of time. So they do share the Arabic language and they do share a lot of sort of cultural traditions that were the result of the shared history, the shared past, you know, whether the Islamic and so on. But as they were being divided into Iraq, Egypt, Sudan, Algeria, and so on and so forth, they were developing also uh, different, of course, needs and identities and localities. But one an important factor that was happening on the political as opposed to the cultural. So there's you know, cultural Arabism that always existed, that was always there. But then came the political Arabism and that specific moment of pan-Arabism with the revolutions in the 1950s, in um, particularly the uh, revolution in Egypt led by Gamal Abdel Nasser and his sort of promotion of the notion of pan-Arabism to be a block of power that would sort of be able to navigate between the East and West, the, the communist and the capitalist that were the first worlds where they were now sort of nestled. It was a power when they were an empire, when it was an Ottoman empire and it was a Safavid empire, all of a sudden they were not. And they needed to find a way of uniting. So they do become a block. And Arabism being, you know, Arabic being the language, this is when they created the Arab League. But the Arab League consists of the different countries of the Arab world, where, you know, someone in Iraq and someone in Egypt in principle, speak Arabic. This is my household, for example. But the dialect spoken in Egypt versus the one spoken in Iraq would be not necessarily easily understood by either. So, you know, it's still Arabic and the standardized, they will read the same newspaper and can watch the same show. But the colloquial spoken languages are so varied that at times, you know, requires uh, translation. Very interesting. I was intrigued by the description of your Ali Lunch and Learn lecture, where you describe the abstraction in Islamic art as an art of transcendence. I love that. The invisible, the contemplative, and of representation. A description like that makes me want to sit quietly and gaze on a sample <laughs> of that art form. Can you go into more detail about what you mean by that? Abstraction as a theme has, or as a style of art has been and is still in question. What does it mean? What is abstract? And how is abstraction different between, let's say, formalism, modern abstraction, and Islamic abstraction, and different other abstraction, which is one of the oldest sort of styles of representation. So if we think about Islamic abstraction and something that had to be revised in the records as moving forward, because at first it was seen as simple geometric shapes and abstract lines that meant nothing. But in reality, it very much reflects the teachings of the religion of Islam, the oneness of God, the unity of God. And so it is, if we were to, in simple terms, you know, without sort of the complexity that is required to actually reach that conclusion. If we think about how God is represented, let's say, in Western Christian art, the image of this old man with the long white beard, well, the geometric shapes that you see in Islamic art would be the representation of God. It is sort of notion of infinity, of grace, of the ornamental uh, beauty, 
filling the space where it is, you know, there's no beginning, no end, but it's beyond the comprehension of the human mind because God doesn't have a shape or a form in Islam, but rather an abstract entity. And it's a, a uniting or a oneness of entity that was found in every repetition of uh, the form that you see in the geometric. In that sense, it transcends because when you invest yourself into the viewing of this, you lose yourself into this. In a way, almost on the notion of uh, uh, the purifying journeys of the Sufist. I've read that the foundation of Islamic art is Arabic calligraphy. I know that many people, when they would look for Arab art in the past, might look for the calligraphy within it, and that modern Arab art now has less focus on the calligraphy itself, but more on the aesthetics of it. Is that going in line with what you're talking about in terms of the abstract and transcending the particular shapes and forms? The idea of calligraphy is one of the most contested when it comes to the modern ah, age. Okay, good to know. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, like I tell my students, there's nothing simple about the region and anything related to it. But I mean, to some extent, it has been called the calligraphy, sort of the quintessential, let's say, Arabian art, because it's based on the language. So because Islamic art specifically, really what it did is just sort of reformulated a lot of the forms that were there within the teaching. It didn't really, there's nothing, an invention necessarily to speak of in that sense as a new aesthetics, but it was just sort of reformulated to be re-signified. So it would be within the teaching of what uh, the Islamic religion directed. Calligraphy would gain a specific status because A, in Islam, the Quran, which is the miracle of Islam, was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad in the Arabic language. Hence, it was through the archangel Gabriel, but in a sense, God delivered the message to his messenger Muhammad through the archangel in the Arabic language. So that gave it this sort of holy, sacred value. And then when it eventually got written down, it was seen into what became the Quran, the need to beautify the Quran became important. And so the developing of various calligraphic styles that are based on various, you know, aesthetics and ideals of beauty and mathematicians and became also, as a matter of fact, so iconic and identity markers that you look at a, a script and you know where that came from. But it's also sort of how you knew this is the Islamic world. You see the Arabic text in calligraphy and you know, you know, let's say you're in the 13th century in Rome, you see this and you understand that this is the Islamic world. It became a specific identity marker and signifier. When it covered various, um, whether it's in the mosque and the Quran or mundane objects, it evoked sort of that sacredness to it. But it was also in various objects, on various objects, was sort of seen as very abstract forms. Now, when these ideas of Arabism in the modern sense develop, where actually there is this notion to secularize because it's no longer about being part of the Muslim world where, you know, Islam came first, now Arabism came first. You could still be a Muslim. In fact, there was a time of history where, for example, you would be an Arab first, an Egyptian second, and a Muslim third. 
And these three identities would shuffle throughout history, depending on the need of that moment. There was in the 20th century, this sort of secularizing move. And through it also, the Arabic text was very much freed from its sacred connection, because instead of it being the language of the Quran, it became the language of the street, the language of slogans, the language that you can sort of manipulate easily. And the visual artists did the same. They took the language and there was, a, you know, again, um, there's a phenomenon that we call horufiya, based on harf, meaning letter. So letterism, for the lack of a better translation of that, where the Arabic letter did serve as a signifier of an Arab identity, but it was taken or deconstructed from its sort of calligraphic rules and regulations and became a free form of shape a form that can give a reference of identity, but not necessarily evoke the Quran or any sacredness. Are there many female artists coming out of the Arab world? Is there an equal amount? Is there parity between the male and female artists coming out of the modern art Ironically, if you speak to female Arab artists, they really resent, uh, especially of the 20th century, they really resent this, you know, because they think that they should not be seen as gendered. The reality is, if you go to the Arab world today, and through most of the last few decades, you'll find that in the art world, whether it's museums or art initiatives or art centers, it is all sort of initiatives of uh, women, Arab women who themselves are Arab artists or curators. And so there is, in fact, one could say a, a large presence of women in the arts. Now, that's, and, and in, equally in terms of artists, there are women artists today, particularly in the contemporary. In retrospect, if we look back, you know, maybe the equity of numbers of, of women and men would be not so different than what it was here or anywhere else in the world where, as I also tell my students, throughout history, Throughout all the religions, women are the ones who always pay the price. So, you know, it's not the the terrain of one country, one culture, or one religion. And so women had always have to sort of fight for their place and, and their equity. But if we look at women artists in the markets and the prices, most women artists will tell you that there is no equity. Male artists still sell higher, possibly get you know, paid more in commissions, despite the fact that there are a wealth of brilliant, creative female women artists in the Arab world. Well, I noticed when I was doing research for our conversation that the works by women total about 13% in the U.S. museums. And I think that's probably true of all female artists in all cultures. It's an interesting phenomenon, probably deserves its own podcast, don't you think? Absolutely. <laughs> that is a <laughs> now, whole different question. You are involved in another extremely interesting effort in documenting the artwork missing and stolen from Baghdad 
during the 2003 invasion. Could you tell us about that? There was a sort of a mass destruction of culture after the invasion of 2003, although much of it on different scales started earlier through the Gulf Wars. As I was able to go to Baghdad in 2003, I wasn't able to go before for political reasons. One of the things that I focused on was to see what was happening at the Museum of Modern Art and what happened to the works from the Museum of Modern Art. The world was very concerned about uh, the Museum of Antiquity, rightly so, and still not even, you know, not enough was done for that either, but there was nothing at all being done for the Museum of Modern Art. And you know, your first question about Arab art and if it doesn't tell us about the Arab world, I mean, this is quite an indicative situation where, for example, anytime I am invited to give a talk about the Museum of Modern Art and, you know, someone in the lecture will come up to me and say, I think there was a mistake in the announcement because it says Museum of Modern Art. You know, surely you'll be talking about the Museum of Antiquity. And somehow, some for some reason, everyone seems to be shocked that there is a Museum of Modern Art in Iraq and there are modern contemporary artists. But this very much has to do with the packaging as I was saying before, the inequality of the art history canon, but also here, the, the even leading through the war to the war, you know, Iraq was uh, portrayed as the land of Mesopotamia, which is true, but it's so much more than just that. That was, you know, several thousand years ago, and there is a thriving modern and contemporary culture in in Iraq as well. But we did not want to present Iraq as such because it makes it harder to go invade a country if we think of the people as equal to us. Well, if we think about them as the ancient past, the sort of, you know, exotic other that is timeless, that we can go save, then that's a whole different approach. And so there was, and still is, a lack of interest to think about what happened to these modern objects from the Museum of Modern Art. But the reality is, those objects are so much needed for Iraq at this moment of time, where there has been so much destruction, dismantling of all of its institutions. And now we're in 2020. Between now and the invasion 2003, there are two generations of kids who grew up not knowing really what their grandfathers and grandmothers had done before. And that is also true in the art. You know, everyone celebrates when the demonstrations in Baghdad took place, and which is a, a great moment of time still happening, as a matter of fact. And the visual representation that was taking place in Tahrir Square, as well as in other places, which again, in itself is an amazing thing. But the reality that the world celebrates this moment as if all of a sudden Iraq uh, discover art is quite problematic and very racist, to be honest, because there is a wealth of history of modern art in Iraq that is completely neglected and ignored. How many modern Iraqi artworks have you seen in museums around the world? Probably none. And this is the where the problem is, because, again, they have not been allocated an equal amount of importance or participation in the development of the modern world. And so this becomes an urgent issue because, A, now it's not only uh, absent uh, from the canon of art history, but 
will have no chance of becoming part of the canon because it disappeared. And two, it is really urgent for the contemporary Iraqi culture to understand, for example, how did the Iraqi artists of the 20th century navigate this new identity of new country, a new nation state? So if they are reforming their country moving forward, they really need their history. They need to know what their forefathers did, but also they need to connect to that. And this is what 20th century artists were trying to do, connect the, the, the lost history of the visual from, let's say, you know, in Iraq, specifically from um, the time of the Baghdad School of Painting of the 13th century manuscripts. Well, I'm assuming, and I don't, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that most of this looted art must have ended up in private collections somewhere. Do you think it might reappear at some point? So, I mean, a lot of it did show up in private collections, but also a lot of it showed up at, you know, small private collections, individuals who at the time thought it was their civic duty as Iraqis to buy the looted work and for safekeeping until there's a time to give it back to a museum. So there were those. And then there are others who found the opportunity to own Iraqi work for cheaper. And now it had an increased value. And so the value of the work is way different than it was in 2003, even where let's say you could buy a a work by a very important Iraqi artist for a couple of hundred dollars. Now it's a couple of hundred thousand dollars. So, you know, the value has changed. And so where those have disappeared to may or may not eventually surface, but here's the problem. And even if they surface, because some of the the sales that happen in black market, we know about, but there's nothing that we can do about it until the government of Iraq initiates the a process of dealing with it. So, I mean, I've worked with the State Department and the FBI at one point, or with the military um, legal system at one point. They try to uh, intercept uh, the movement of the artwork, or they uh, take a hold of one. But the reality is, until there is a sort of organized effort, official effort by the government of Iraq, there isn't much that we can do. And this could just all disappear. What is your search entailing? What are you doing? Are you cataloging what's missing? How are you doing that? Exactly. That's all I can do. The first couple of years, I tried to locate some of the, you know, people would tell me there was this sort of misunderstanding um, uh, that maybe coming from America, I would have money and I can buy back some of these works. Um, and, you know, when they started adding value, accumulating value, all I wanted to do as an art historian is to document, to archive. There was a time in the first few years that if I walk into a gallery in, in let's say, Beirut or Amman, people say, oh, that's her hide everything. So that kind of stopped being a possibility for me to track the works. I started this project in Modern Art Iraq Archive to where I can sort of upload things and then we can cross-reference. So I collect anything and everything that was ever printed, produced about a catalog, a leaflet, a newspaper, a postcard about any works of Iraqi art, try to at least accumulate an archive of what was produced and then shed some light on the possibility of some of these works having been the property of the museum. And I mean, you know, some of the works can easily be placed at the museum, others not so easily, but also we don't really know if the government of Iraq had gifted any of these works to somewhere else. And so for me to say this is 
uh, looted work, but then it appears in um, an official collection in some other country because it was a gift by the president of Iraq is also an issue. So there are a lot of sort of legal as well as ethical issues in all of that. So at best, and what I can do is archive and document, because the more that is out there to study, at least, you know, so we can, in fact, have graduate students able to focus on modern art of Iraq, the better the narratives are reformed and the better the possibilities of these works at one point being seen, at least. Sounds like an admirable but very complex task that you're involved Seems in. Seems every everything that I'm involved in is very <laughs> complex. They are very connected, to be honest, and they all kind of go back to the same problematic of this post-colonial age. And, you know, we say post-colonial, the reality is that I don't know. I think it's still the colonial age. I don't think we've gone to the post, even though that some countries gained, in, gained independence, but uh, we they entered the age of neo-colonial, maybe. I mean, you know, we are still bat- battling the old battles. So we have not moved beyond a lot of these issues. And so it's all connected, whether they were looted in 2003 or not acknowledged in 1960 or 1970 or, you know, it, or um, even earlier under you know British rule. It's very much sort of the same problematic that, that, be- that begins from the same source. What advice would you like to leave the listeners who are interested in exploring modern Arab art more fully. The advice that I would give with the hope that you do see more, you are able to see more. This is the one thing that happened with the coronavirus um, uh, situation with the COVID-19 is that a lot is appearing or surfacing online. Yeah, there's an urgency. So, you know, we're stress testing a lot of, of the ideas that we've had before. And now they are online and people are able to view a lot more. I say, Leave your preconceived ideas, you know, in fact, leave anything that you've learned, unlearn these things that you think you knew about the Arab world and look at the arts with fresh eyes. Let them lead you to the country, the culture and where they come from, because they have so many stories. This is what art does. It tells stories. They have so many stories to tell and that no, no two stories are the same. So just allow yourself to see the story, to hear the story. Sounds like very good advice. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. This has been Susan Supak at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, speaking with Dr. Nada Shabut. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ali at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.